I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So six years ago, six years ago in early November, after years of campaigns and ugly debates, Americans sat in their homes as their televisions broadcast the results of an intense battle. You probably know of what I speak. They prayed, perhaps with sweat on their brows, and anxiously awaited the outcome of a victory that would electrify the world. Some were horrified, and others had been waiting their entire lives for this sort of establishment upset. Of course, I'm speaking of the Chicago Cubs winning the 2016 World Series. Is there something else that happened that November? Now, truly, many call this the greatest World Series ever, with the greatest Game 7 ever. Ten innings with a sweet, sweet resolution for Chicago Cubs fans. What I want to know is how did their fans endure 108 years of disappointment? Rich Cohen writes in Harper's Magazine what those years looked like, saying, when the Chicago Cubs last won a World Series, the automobile was still a new and untrusted invention. In the years since that series, most of the European monarchies have collapsed. Two world wars have been fought. Communism has risen and fallen, and disco has come and gone and come back again. <laughs> Losing year after year, sometimes in the last weeks of the season, more often in the middle of August, the Cubs have become a symbol of futility, the blind, never having hope of a hopeless people. Before his death, Jack Brickhouse, the great Cubs play-by-play -play man, excused the team by saying, everyone's entitled to a bad century. <laughs> the Cubbies World Series win was a long time coming, in other words. But it raises an interesting question. Was the victory greater because of the long period of struggle and loss? In the last several years, we've seen serious problems in the world, both domestically and internationally, from Ukraine to COVID to tornadoes and floods, even in our own commonwealth, we've seen horrific loss. And domestically, our nation seems to have reached new extremes of agitation and division on multiple levels, not least politically. So in light of such significant challenge and loss, I wonder what can the church offer the world? And how might we, the church, have hope? How can we have hope in the midst of it all? You see, it was easy to be a Cubs fan in 2016, but what about the previous 108 years? We might also say anyone can be a Christian during times of life and victory, but what will sustain us through seasons of difficulty and loss and suffering and anxiety and, yes, even our greatest enemy, death itself? Simply put, if we who follow not only the resurrected and descended Christ, 
but also the suffering Christ, do not know how to endure trials with hope, then our faith will always be doomed to shallowness. If we do not have a theology of suffering, we will not properly understand a theology of glory and of hope, of resurrection and ascension. Thankfully, our passages today provide a kind of one-two punch of what we might call challenge and invitation. The big idea is that the church is challenged to endure hardship because the end of the story has already been written. The invitation to the final celebration has been extended. The tickets to the cosmic box office have been paid in advance in full invitation and challenge. So let's just dive a little deeper. The invitation is as follows, to firmly trust in God's promise of a new heavens and a new earth. You see, the assumption is that we must not place here our ultimate hope in the wrong thing. And the prophet Isaiah delivers God's promise to us. I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice and forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. This is a place a place where they shall build houses and inhabit them, where an old person will live out a lifetime, where the infant will not pass. This is a place where our labor will not be in vain, where children will not be born into the world for calamity, but will be blessed by the Lord. This is the same promise that is picked up at the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21. And so if our tendency is to see the Bible as merely a heaven-promising book, then we will be blinded to other texts like this that are about the new heavens and the new earth, that are about the resurrection of the dead, that are about the saints, that are about those from our families who've gone before us, that are about the renewal of all things. Behold, I'm making all things new. God promises. This is about the Garden of Genesis being fulfilled in the city of God. And the significance of this is astounding. Our hope is not simply a kind of popular view of heaven, but it is the city of God that will be multicultural, multi-ethnic, transnational. It will be a physical place with the goods of human culture and the activities of daily life so shot through with the very presence of God that all of those things become acts of worship. And if this is the case, if that is the vision, then we begin to see how it matters to act even now as if everything we do is tethered to this ultimate reality. For as C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. But this seems too good to be true, doesn't it? I mean, how is this possible? How is this possible? It's like the Cubs winning the World Series. A satirical article from The Onion, if you've ever read that, envisioned after the World Series, Cubs fans in heaven storming the pearly gates and foisting a W flag on top of them, and others were 
wailing on golden harps or dumping pitchers of beer on archangels. I mean, for some, the hope just seems fantastical, too satirical. Again, like the Cubs winning the World Series, but multiplied by infinity even. And I get it. I mean, Woody Allen quipped, the wolf and the lamb may lie down together, but the lamb's not going to get very much sleep. (laughs) It's hard to believe. So if we're tempted to be overcome by the struggle, by the loss, by whatever it is that weighs you down, we're in good company. You see, if the hope of Isaiah 65 is like a cosmic version of the Cubs winning the World Series, what do you do when your team has not won the game? I mean, do you think that this might have relevance to a nation that flip-flops between different political administrations amidst culture wars? The answer is paradoxical and yet simple. If we ask the question, what must we do next? It is simple, yet paradoxical. We go to the cross. We go to the cross, and this is where the invitation shifts to challenge, the challenge of the cross. Jesus reminds us and his disciples, as we see in the gospel this morning, that suffering with and for Christ is ingredient to the life of discipleship. That's hard to hear for us. In fact, it's the very next chapter of Luke where he moves toward the suffering of the cross, where that all really begins in the Gospel of Luke. You see, the hope of Isaiah 65, what is it? It's a promissory note that is paid out in full in the new heavens and the new earth, but it is financed by what? The work of Jesus on the cross with an advance paid out in the form of resurrection the resurrection of Jesus. And so the advance hope of the resurrection is a down payment by God on our suffering, securing for us the hope that we can endure trials because the victory is won. In other words, if Luke calls the church to endure the loss of beauty, the loss of possessions, the loss of respect, and even life itself, then he does so only because he knows the end of the story. That in the midst of hardship, even through our very hardships, we are beneficiaries of a hope that is fixed. So what then is our task? Well, our task is to anticipate and bear witness to how resurrection life and victory is breaking into the present. We might call these many advances because the task of the disciple is not a hope with blind eyes to the suffering and trials around us, but it is a hope with eyes wide open to how God's victory might be manifest in and through the suffering itself, to how God's victory might be sweetened even through various trials for those who remain faithful. By enduring, you will gain your souls, Jesus says. And thus, to endure the cross is not tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So what might this look like for us in the coming days and weeks and years? I think there's tons of applications, but I'll just make one. 
Some years ago, I came across a motto of Carthusian monks who say, stat crux dum volvator orbis, the cross is steady while the world is turning. We currently live, to state the obvious, in a deeply divided nation where many feel marginalized and afraid while others feel even relief and joy with elections this week. Some feel that their team has lost after having one for some time, while still others feel the opposite. It's not that political administrations don't matter or have serious implications for human flourishing. Of course they do. But to be overwhelmed by an enduring sense of anxiety on the one hand or elation on the other is to court the lie that political power is our Messiah, or at least such pressures such responses force us to ask at bottom, in whom is our ultimate trust placed? The church. The church must find its hope first and foremost in the wisdom and the pattern of the cross, which is to say the place where we are mutually called to repentance, to humility, to forbearance, and a love that obliges us to reach out across the aisle, as it were, and to exercise compassion not only to our neighbor, but even to our enemy, Jesus Christ says, even the one who would kill us. This is not a call to quiescence or a pass for those who want to maintain or maintain the status quo. It is the call of discipleship, the call of Christ. For it's at the foot of the cross where we might be able to hear this word. We might be able to hear him even in the other, even the one across the aisle from us. If Jesus' first team, after all, of disciples included both a tax collector and a zealot, two people radically opposed to one another's positions, then there is more space for listening, for forbearance and patience than we are initially inclined to allow. You see, the church that is destined to celebrate together in the new heavens and the new earth must learn to suffer together too and to suffer especially with those who suffer, for that is precisely what Jesus has done for us. And only when we have learned this will we be able to understand the good news, the good news, the gospel of cross and resurrection and the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. I'll just close by reading the final line of our opening hymn this morning as a kind of prayer set before us, which reads, O wounded hands of Jesus, build in us thy new creation. Our pride is dust, our vaunt is stilled. We wait thy revelation. O love that triumphs over loss, we bring our hearts before thy cross to finish thy salvation.